As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Life After God podcast, where we explore the space between belief and unbelief and beyond. Today is January 27th, and this is episode 22. So glad you're with us today because I have a really fantastic interview to share with you. Today, I bring you a conversation with former Mormon and founder and host of Mormon Stories podcast, John DeLynn. John and I have been talking over the last several months uh, on online and on the phone about our similar stories and the work that he and I are both doing and have just found a lot in common uh, between us. And it's, uh, I think, and I hope, the beginning of uh, a great friendship. But today I bring you a conversation uh, with him about his own journey and uh, where he is today and what he hopes uh, for the future of uh, post-theism and the work that he's doing with people that are in the process of doubting and questioning their belief, going through a faith crisis, and the work that he does uh, around that. So I'm really excited to, to share this conversation with you. John received a PhD in clinical and counseling psychology from Utah State University in 2015. His research interests involve the nexus of religion and mental health, John's research has been published in numerous peer-reviewed scientific journals, including the Journal of Counseling Psychology, the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy, Identity, the Journal of Cognitive Psychotherapy, the Journal of Homosexuality, and the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion. Prior to obtaining his PhD, John worked for seven years at the Microsoft Corporation and three years at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology as the director of the International Open Courseware Consortium. John's work has been featured in the New York Times, National Public Radio, ABC's Good Morning America, ABC's Nightline, The Wall Street Journal, The Huffington Post, VH1, and Radio West. John also gave a TED Talk in 2013, and I'll provide the link to that TED Talk in the show notes. Um, John's interests, as I said, involve um, 
deconversion and people's experience of uh, leaving religion, especially uh, he has a special interest in um, homosexuality and religion. Um, and a lot of his story, as you'll hear, uh, revolves around uh, working with young people who, uh, because of their religious upbringing, are in the midst of a major crisis around their identity. And uh, uh, John's podcast has been going for uh, 10 years. They have over 600 episodes, and it's one of the most popular uh, podcasts of its genre uh, on iTunes. And I invite you and encourage you to go to Mormon Stories. Even if you're not a Mormon, I think, uh, or a former Mormon, you will uh, find so much at, uh, at that pod, on that podcast that it resonates uh, with anyone who has gone through a crisis of faith and a transition in their religious uh, ideology. Uh, I'll come back on the end of the show and uh, give you a few more updates and uh, announce a very special a partnership that John and I are entering into. So for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with John DeLynn. John DeLynn, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Thanks, Ryan Bell. I'm a huge fan of your podcast, so it's an honor to be on your show. And uh, mutual admiration for for yours. And we've, uh, it's a little, little, uh, overdue, I think. I've been wanting to have you on the show and, you know, listening to your show a little bit here and there. And uh, some friends of mine, it's it's fun, you know, I'm sure you get this too. Listeners say, you know who you should interview and they give you a list of people that you should talk to. <laughs> yeah. And you've been on several of those lists, you know, and so I'm finally, finally getting here. So I'm really, really happy that we can do this. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm excited. So you are, for those that don't know, um, the founder and host of the podcast Mormon Stories. And you also have a website, Mormon Transitions, uh, and you do uh, faith crisis coaching, I think you call it, where you work with people who are going through through a faith crisis. And uh, you've been doing that for – you've been doing the podcast now for what, 10 years? Yeah, 10 years. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, 620-some episodes, I think. It's uh, really impressive. And uh, I'm just a baby podcaster over here. But you're making fast ground. Keep it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thanks. It's so much fun. You know, my first fear about it was that I would run out of people to talk to and it would come, you know, <laughs> I release my shows on Wednesday. So I would, you know, I would have this fear that I would come Tuesday and I would think, oh my goodness, who am I going to talk to? I It's going to totally bomb, you know, and so far I'm backlogged into April. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, it's doing well. So yeah. I'm really, yeah, I'm really excited about, about you being on the show and, you know, we, I want to get into your story and then eventually talk about what you're doing now and, um, and kind of some, some things that we've been talking about offline. So you, uh, you were raised in the Mormon church, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. Um, my ancestors go back to the very beginnings of Mormonism in the 1830s and 40s. Um, my, my ancestors you know, knew Joseph Smith. Uh, you know, this is like six generations ago. They, they crossed the plains as pioneers, many of them. Uh, they settled in, in Utah and in Idaho through my mother. Um, the Bensons and the Parkinsons, they settled uh, a good chunk of southern Idaho. Um, my, uh, I was just reading my, my, uh, history a little bit, my genealogy. I, I learned recently that my great grandfather on my mother's side, uh, was a polygamist. Uh, he had four wives. And so my grandmother, Karma, uh, my mother's mother, she was the daughter of the third wife of 
of William Brigham Parkinson. And wow. so, so literally I knew my grandmother. So, I mean, my my grandmother was the daughter of a polygamous family. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm about as Mormon to the bone as you could probably get. <laughs> and is six generations, is that, I mean, I, I'm from an Adventist background and our origins go back to the 1840s as well. And when I meet an Adventist that's five or six generations Adventist, that's pretty much the beginning, isn't it? Is there other yeah. more generations than yeah. that? Yeah, if you're in your 40s, six generations is, is about as good as it gets. Um, yeah. Yeah, of course, if you're in your 20s or you're a newborn now, you're going to be eight, nine, nine generations potentially. But um, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, I'm definitely pioneer stock and true blue to the bone <laughs> Mormon. <laughs> wow, that's yeah. amazing. And was your... Um, was your growing up experience in the church, uh, what was that like? I mean, you, you were obviously, like, as you said, raised in the church, long history of uh, Mormon ancestors. And um, was, it, was it a positive experience overall being in that community? What was it, what was it like, I guess, to grow up Mormon? Yeah. So, um, you know, for, for many years, Mormons gathered in Utah and were very insular. But sort of starting in the 60s and 70s, there was what you might call a diaspora where Mormons started getting really good jobs and getting really good educations and started spreading out over the globe. So my my dad, uh, even though he was from Salt Lake City and my mom from Idaho, they moved to California and then to Texas. Um, so I was, I was uh, raised primarily in Texas. I moved there when I was like two years old. I lived five years in Dallas and 12 years in Houston. So I, I, I consider myself a Texan. Um, but, uh, you know, when I moved to Houston in 1976, 77, uh, the church, you know, there were just, there were just, uh, you know, a few congregations within Mormon congregations within the 30 mile radius. And so Mormons were definitely in the minority, you know, Katy, Katy, Texas, which is where I, I grew up. It was very much a Baptist town. And I remember my Mormon upbringing very, very fondly. Um, I, I remember having a sense of pride that we were different from the people around us. I took pride in, you know, graduating from high school, never having tried alcohol or tried a cigarette, never having even masturbated, if I can use that word on your show. You can. You can use any words. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't mess around with girls, no premarital sex. But also, I just, you know, I was a good, clean kid. I was, you know, student body president, captain of the varsity basketball team. And I I really do attribute so much of kind of that Donny Osmond, good, clean living to, to my to Mormonism, as much as Mormons might be seen outside as a cult or, you know, as um, as weird or bigoted. I just have such tender, fond memories of learning, learning the songs as a kid and service projects and and studying the scriptures and being really dedicated to to Jesus you know and to God and to righteousness and you know we didn't see ourselves as weird we just saw ourselves as people trying to love each other and to make the world a better place and to help humanity uh do good things and and so yeah i i you know my parents you know probably one of the tragic things that was a crack in my faith was when my parents got divorced and mm -hmm. but but see but see even though my family kind of went crazy for a while it was the church that kind of stepped in and supported me and and I had you know leaders as a child and as a young man who took took care of me and encouraged me and made me believe in myself and so 
Yeah, I just I think of it as like the all American white bread, uh, you know, Donny Osmond Mormon experience as a young kid. It was fabulous. You know, we uh, as Seventh Day Adventists often got mixed up with with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, people just sort of threw all of the sort of mid nineteenth century American born religions in one basket and. Right. You know, if you were wearing a, a white shirt and a black tie, you were, you know, a Mormon missionary. Or <laughs> right. if you were knocking on doors or doing any of that stuff, it was. And so people were like, "Oh, yeah, so you guys are the ones with the Prophet Joseph Smith." And right. I was like, "No, no, no, our Prophet's Ellen White." But we have a very similar. Um, and again, I, I still sometimes say we because I feel like this is still so much a part of my yeah, me his, too. my life and history. Totally. Um, the Adventist Church started in New England. Around the same time in the early 19th century, um, there was a founding kind of moment, great, great disappointment when there was a prediction Jesus was going to come in 1844, and uh, we had a prophet, as, as the Mormon church does, and um, persecution and feeling like – I, too, in high school, um, you know, didn't drink, didn't smoke didn't mess around with girls. I, because we were Sabbatarians, I, I missed all the dances – I went, uh, I didn't go, my graduation was on a Friday night and uh, we, uh, the Adventists observed Sabbath in the Jewish way from Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown. And my school, my high school actually moved graduation up an hour so that I could participate in the ceremony. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this was my experience as well. Like yeah. I was a veg- vegetarian at a time when people just thought that was weird. And um, so, but I do have the same kind of feeling of fondness about um, Sabbath afternoon dinners at the house when the preacher would come over and we'd have these long conversations about how there could be dinosaurs before the flood and then what happened to them and how do we figure all this stuff out. And uh, it, was, it was great. I, I loved it. Yeah, we had – fortunately for us Mormons, we, we, we were allowed to dance and we loved to dance. So we – you know, some of my fondest memories are things like, you know, dances where like – you know, 300 kids would take over an entire church gymnasium and just stomping to like, you know, Michael Jackson or Men mm. Without Hats or Lover, <laughs> Lover Boy. You know, this was the mid 80s. Um, but you couldn't touch each other too much, right? No, like we, could, we could slow dance. No, we could oh, slow yeah? dance. You know, they, they would sometimes want to make sure they could put a book between us. But <laughs> no, you, you, yeah. you could totally dance. We would have dance festivals where we'd all dance or we'd put on musicals. They called them road shows. Um, we would do service projects like, yeah, the youth programs were dynamite. Um, yeah. And, but, but another thing that was interesting is, you know, because I went to a, I was in a Baptist town, you know, there'd be kid, there'd be girls, let's just say who kind of, I liked and they liked me. But as soon as mom and dad found out that their kid was dating a Mormon, they would sort of put an end to it. Right. And, you know, the local first Baptist church would hold a weekend seminar called Mormons and other cults. And it was really weird to, to, feel like you were part of something so beautiful to have such amazing experiences, but then to have the host culture view you as a cult, as something evil. And in some ways, I think that's that's the secret sauce to some of these more fundamentalist religions, because you actually, at least I did, you get this sort of excitement and confidence that you're, you're other and it, it, instead of making you feel like you have low self-esteem, it makes you feel like you're part of the chosen. And so we right. call, we called ourselves, you know, children of God. You know, the, you know, we kind of considered other people Gentiles. Uh, we were kind of the pure blood of Israel, and and that we actually got a, a real kick from it. You know, <laughs> yeah, we called ourselves the remnant. You know, the the little the little group that's on the right track. Yeah, that's awesome.
In fact, my first girlfriend in high school uh, was a Mormon girl. And uh, so that was kind of confusing for our families, you know, like they didn't really want her dating an Adventist and my parents wow. didn't really want me, me <laughs> dating a Mormon. But I think they all had the wisdom to know that it wasn't like we were going to get married next week or something, that it was probably, you know, sophomores in high school. It was going to be fine. And uh, her sister was actually one of my best friends in was in my grade. And, and uh, the girl that I dated was a couple uh, grades below me. And uh, yeah, and their family was great. We would go over to their house. I would go over to their house on, um, you know, nights of the week during the weekends. And, and their family was just fantastic. And um, I, I loved it. I loved being with, with their family. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, it's funny because if you watch that South Park episode called All About the Mormons, yeah, it's, it, you know, they do make fun of Mormons there, but but really the joke is how amazing the Mormon family is in that movie, how well they get along, how much fun they have together. And while that wasn't my particular experience, obviously, because my parents got divorced, that's been my general experience that a lot of Mormon families just really do families well. Now, I'm sure we don't have a monopoly on that, but I do think there's something really special about the way, you know, Mormon families can be and probably other families of sort of fundamentalist tight knit religions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So for 10 years, you've been doing Mormon stories. How did that come about in your, in your life? How did you decide to do that? Well, so, you know, going back a bit, there are a couple things that kind of put cracks in what, what I would call my testimony. You know, that's what Mormons call their set of beliefs. Um, you know, you know, the first is that, you know, the more there's a Mormon teaching that only Mormon families sealed in a Mormon temple get to uh, go to the highest degree of heaven and stay together and then become, you know, exalted gods. That's sort of fundamental core Mormon theology. Mm -hmm. and, and there's two important parts to that. One is that, all the other families in the world that aren't married in Mormon temples, they don't get to be together in heaven. Um, and that serves as a real motivation to want to, you know, to, to go to the temple and to get sealed in the temple as a Mormon. Um, but, but also, uh, that's really ironic when you're a kid and you believe really strongly in that, but then your family gets divorced, right? So you're, all these Mormons are in a loving, humble way bragging about how their family's eternal and all these Gentiles' families aren't eternal, but you're sitting there in Sunday school kind of wondering, well, what about your family that just got divorced? Are you like all the Gentiles where you're not going to be with your family? And that, you know, that was a little bit of crack for me because I, it made me sensitive to others who don't enjoy a certain privilege because I, felt like I was out on that one. And there really isn't anything more important in Mormonism than being exalted with your family and becoming gods. And so right. that was a crack. I, I make the joke that a second crack was that um, it turns out that I went to high school with Renee Zellweger. And uh, oh, wow. we were really close friends all through high school, believe it or not. And oh, cool. my junior year of high school, uh, I got up the, the courage to take her to one of these Mormon dances. It was a New Year's dance. And I... I drove all the way to her house and I picked her up and we were all dressed up and we drove like 45 minutes to this dance kind of north of where we lived. And we got out, got in the building and the leaders took one look at her. She had a sleeveless dress on and I didn't think a thing about it. It was really modest. You know, she's really petite. Right. And they, they told her she had to go home and change. 
Oh, my word. And we, and we had driven 45 minutes just to get there. And, <laughs> and of course, dummy me, I'm like, okay, Renee, let's go change. And she's like, you know, let's go home and change and we'll come back. And she's like bawling. She's like, take me home, you know. And uh, and, I, and it ruined it ruined that chance with her. Now, we remained friends, but she had no interest ever again in anything Mormon. And I joked that the Mormons had the chance to have their own John Travolta or uh, Tom Cruise and they, and they blew it, you know. They blew yeah. it. But, have uh, you ever had a chance to talk to her about that since she's become famous? You know, the last time I talked to her was my senior year in college. She called me. She lived in Texas. She went to University of Texas. She told me that she was going to become an actress. And I, I have to admit it that I just kind of laughed. I'm like, oh, come on. You know, well, I, you know, I was like, good for you. But there was a real skeptical part of me because you don't expect a, a girl you dated that you went to high school with to be on the cover of Cosmopolitan That's or, to, for sure. or to show up in a movie trailer. But I mean, all those actresses went to high school with somebody. So, That's right. Yeah, it happened. I, I, I kind of laughed and I said, good for you. And we said goodbye and we lost touch. And then sure enough, I'm living in Chicago, married with my wife. And I look at a, the Jerry Maguire movie trailer and I'm like, That's Renee. <laughs> so, but <laughs> wow, no, we, we, we've, we've lost touch. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm sure. Well, maybe she'll be on Mormon Stories one day. Maybe, yeah, <laughs> tell, she'll tell the tell, story. Tell, the tell story. that story. That's but just, amazing. But just to continue, so the next big crack in my in my testimony happened on my mission. I was called to serve a mission in Guatemala. You know, we served two-year missions there. And strangely enough, I had a mission president, kind of the leader of my mission. He's a cousin of Mitt Romney. His name is Gordon Romney. And um, he was an executive, like a you know IBM executive kind of guy. And he was super ambitious, and he wanted to be the top baptizing mission in the world. And so um, he would just encourage really aggressive missionary tactics. And so there, there, uh, there came this, this missionary companionship that started doing this crazy thing where they would go to the poorest town they could in a little Pueblo. They would play soccer with a bunch of little poor, you know, Guatemalan kids without shoes and and uh, after they were done playing soccer, they'd take eight or ten of them back to the chapel at a time to, quote, cool off. Oh, yeah. And what they would do is they, you know, never taught them discussions, you know, lessons, never talked to their parents, never brought them to church. And they would baptize them eight or ten at a time. And so some of these um, some of these companionships would get 40 baptisms in a single month. Wow. And there were all these little kids. And when I caught wind of that, I was such an idealistic, you know, young missionary, you know, who had never even masturbated. And and I'm seeing like what what appears to be like the perversion of God's holy ordinance, which is baptism. Right. Right. So I go to my mission president, President Romney, and I say, hey, this stuff doesn't seem right. And this feels really bad. But what I didn't understand is we were the second highest baptizing mission in the world. And President Romney really liked the numbers, so he didn't want to know the details, right? Oh, yeah. And so instead of, like, putting an end to it and stopping it, he yelled at me and punished me and threatened me that if I kept talking and if I kept going against priesthood leadership, that, you know, that I'd be in trouble. And, and you know, uh, you're taught exact obedience as a Mormon missionary. And so I came home from my mission with this really dark pit inside just just seeing the uh, the dark underbelly of what could be the corporate church. And strangely enough, I, I took my concerns after my mission to the church headquarters 
to thinking that they would, you know, completely go crazy and punish this guy. And basically what they did is they said, hey, you know what? He's almost done with his term as a mission president. So we're just going to go ahead and let him finish because it would be really ugly to make a big stink. And so they did nothing. Oh, wow. And so that was like, you know, I did lose my faith then. But at that point, I kind of said, the fish is starting to smell from the head. You know what I mean? Yeah. But but I, but I you're so ingrained in the culture and in your family ties and in your identity that it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, I graduated from BYU. I married my wife. We had four kids. It wasn't until I was at Microsoft in uh, Seattle, kind of around 2000, 2001, when I was called uh, as a seminary teacher to teach religion to early morning high school students, when I started studying our church's history in depth, okay, I, I thought I knew Mormon history, but uh, once I started really digging into it, I learned that Joseph Smith had thirty-four wives. Never in you know thirty-one years as a devout Mormon had anyone ever mentioned any other wife to me at church than Emma, his first wife. Hmm. And so you're thinking, whoa, okay, wait. So I've been here 31 years. I graduated from the, the church's university. I did four years of high school seminary where I studied every morning for an hour the scriptures and our history, and never once did anyone happen to mention that our founding prophet not only married 34 other women, but several of them were 14, 15 years old. Right. Several of them were married to other men. And and not only that, but he lied about it. He when he was confronted publicly as a polygamist, he denied it. And we have that in writing. And then when people started coming out who were on the inside admitting that he had been a polygamist and that he was lying about it as mayor and chief justice and, you know, head of the legion of, you know, his hometown, which was Nauvoo at the time. He actually ordered the printing press destroyed um, and and would punish anyone who spoke honestly about what he was doing. And, you know, this is just like two things of like 300 major problems with Mormon history and doctrine and theology and history. But 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 um, it gives you a sense of the sort of things I started learning Um you know, as a 30-something Mormon with four children, having fully given my life to the church. And that's when the wheels came off the wagon. Yeah, boy, I can imagine. I mean, I remember this is all an interesting feature of, of religions and Christianity in particular, the way that you can see the crazy in someone else's religion, but you can't <laughs> right. see it in your own. Yeah. Because I, I remember, you know, learning a little bit about Mormonism just sort of from – randomly like i never sat down to learn about mormonism but as a pastor i had to know what other religions believed and other denominations and people would as i said mix us up with mormons so i kind of had to say no these are the differences and this is why we're definitely not mormons you know and uh, they think they're going to become gods and have their own planet and then there was this idea of um you know the golden plates you know in in joseph smith's you know on his property or whatever. Did, yeah. I mean, did that sort of thing just ever strike you as completely incredulous? Like, or, or was that, did that just get absorbed or did you not even hear about that as, as you know, growing up in the church? Oh no, the, you know, we were proud of the golden plates. It's just like, honestly, it's this worldview where even though, you know, I once did the math as a high schooler, 
I divided like five, you know, 10 million Mormons into like 5 billion humans. And it's like less than one half of 1%. And yet, <laughs> and yet I'm like, oh, every other narrative, every other church is illegitimate. There's no other legitimate baptism or marriage or, you know, sacrament. We're the one true church. We're God's chosen people on the earth. And Joseph is God's chosen prophet. And yep. he's the one who spoke with God. And and an angel delivered him golden plates. And I was proud of that. I was like, yeah, yeah all the other church, you know, all the other people don't understand the Bible. You know, they, they don't have the authority, you know, Same they, for us. They're, they're corrupt, you know, and, and, yeah. and we're the pure God's chosen people. And it just, you, you, you know, and here's how it fit. You know, the community was made you feel so good and the teachings that you were better than everybody else and true and God's chosen person made you feel so dang good. Why would you ever want to look under the covers? Right. You yeah, know, that's true. And there was like, for, for Adventists, there was uh, probably for you guys too, there was this double narrative. One was that we have the truth and in the end of time, people will truly see the truth and those that will accept it will be saved. So there was this kind of triumphalistic narrative. But then there was also a corresponding uh, minimalist narrative, which is, you know, the truth is hard to accept and we're a small, tiny remnant. And in the end of time, you know, when Jesus comes back, there'll only be 144,000. So you you could win either way. If people pointed out that the church was growing, they would say, oh, look, because the truth is having its day, you know. And then if the church wasn't growing and declining, then then you could say, well, you know, the truth is hard to accept and we are the remnant after all. And and you can't really expect the world to accept this hard message. So you could you could have it both yeah, ways. Yeah, actually, we the Mormon Church got itself into trouble because because of the missionary tactics that I experienced on my mission. We had this massive statistical growth in the 80s and 90s where like Rodney Stark, some famous sociologist, was predicting yeah. that we would become like the next great world religion. And it was because the growth rates of the 80s and 90s were based on these fraudulent missionary tactics. And so I grew up with this interpretation of the prophecy in Daniel about the stone being cut forth out of the mountain without hands and consuming all nations. Yeah. We were taught that Mormonism was going to grow and sort of sweep the whole earth to usher in the millennium. No, no, no. That was Adventist. We had that story. <laughs> no, no, no. But, but we were, we thought we were growing and we started saying, we started telling people for decades, we're the fastest growing religion right. and, and we were on paper, but now we're seeing that that growth was fraudulent. And we're seeing that if you go to Brazil or Chile, we may claim a million members there, but on the, census, maybe yeah. only a hundred thousand people will actually claim that they're actually Mormons. And it's because they got baptized once, but they don't even remember it. Right. So, so now that's, what's funny. Now the church, the church leaders are starting to tell people, Oh, the times are getting really scary and we're starting to be persecuted and don't expect, you know, to, you know, we're going to fall out of favor because the world's so evil. And because we supported same sex marriage and people are going to hate us now. And so we're not going to grow. But that's like a that's an opposite narrative to what I grew up with. But people people are okay. They forget and they just kind of move on with whatever the current teaching is. <laughs> yeah, the current explanation for why yeah. things are the way they are. Totally. Yeah. So you started doing Mormon stories while you were you were still a Mormon. Were you active in a, a local congregation at the time you started the podcast? Yeah. So I was totally devastated after losing my faith. But just you know, fortunately or unfortunately, there was a strain of Mormon scholars from the 70s and 80s 
that we're trying to do something comparable to what you kind of the reformed Jews did back in the 50s and 60s, which was to say, you don't have to believe everything literally, you don't have to obey everything you're told, you know, and they were trying to advance sort of a progressive form of Mormonism that, that would allow you to retain your culture, just like reformed Jews, but not have to hold on to bigoted or, you know, literalistic beliefs. And so instead of just bailing, which sometimes I wish I had done, uh, I I had this really idealistic sense that maybe we could carve out a space within Mormonism for progressive thought. Um, but to do that, we had to start speaking openly and not cowering to the threats of excommunication because very famously, uh, Mormon scholars started really picking up steam in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. And so what the church did to combat that in 1993 is they picked six of the most prominent Mormon scholars in October, in the September of 1993, and they excommunicated six people in one month. Oh, wow. And they call this the September 6th, and within Mormon intellectual circles, it was a really bad thing. And so, um, and so for like 20, literally 20 years, it really sent a chill. Um, wait, would that be, no, I'd say 10 years. It sent a real chill in Mormon scholarly academic discourse. Yeah, and I so, bet people were not as willing to, to sort of speak out. But, but, but when I had my faith crisis around 2001, 2002, 2003, I just thought it was outrageous that there was nothing on the internet. There was no one talking about this uh, in any public way. And everybody was scared. And so I just, I took this leap of faith and I just, you know, I was making a couple hundred grand a year at Microsoft. I was working with some of the top people there and I just, we just left <laughs> and we wow. moved to this tiny town in Logan, Utah. I, I, you know, I went, I went from whatever, a couple hundred grand a year to like 20 grand a year, 30 grand a year, got, got into a PhD program and, and started a podcast in 2005. And the idea was whatever, whatever happens to me or to anyone, we have to start talking openly about this stuff like that. Yeah. I don't care if I'm excommunicated, if this ends bad, what I will not do is just allow silence and coercion to persist. And so what I try to do very carefully is never to attack the church leadership because that's lethal. Right. And never to deny the church's truth claims personally because that's lethal. But what I would do is I would bring on, um, you know, Mormon historians, uh, you know, gay Mormons, black Mormons, uh, feminist Mormons. Uh, polygamous Mormons, you know, I would bring on whatever type of Mormon I needed to, to address a difficult issue. And I would just have them tell their story because I thought it's one thing if we're like trying to be Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity or Glenn Beck and like yell at the church and call them to repentance and, and become kind of a pundit. And I said, I don't think that's going to emotionally work. If you read Jonathan Haidt's work, you know, it's a rider on an elephant and the elephant is emotion. Right. And we're not going to move people through uh, logic. You know, you can't reason someone out of a position they arrived at emotionally. Mm -hmm. And so stories would become this Trojan horse where I didn't have to say what I did or didn't believe. We didn't have to criticize anybody. We would just bring a gay man on who served a mission in the church and 
was told by his bishop to marry a woman, so he married the woman, and then he had kids, but then he the gay gayness didn't go away like his bishop promised, and mm-hmm. then he suffered for 20 years, and he went through reparative therapy, and he tried to make it go away, but he couldn't, and ultimately he divorced his wife because he was miserable, and his wife was miserable, and then he found the man of his dreams, and he got married, and now he's super happy and healthy. And if you just let that guy, which Buckley Jepson was one of my first interviews, you let that guy tell his story, well, that's that's harder to argue with. And it and it really touches people because you can argue about the biology of homosexuality. But when you've got this guy saying, don't tell me I didn't try to change my sexual orientation. I tried for 20 years to the point where I was ready to cut my wrists. And when, and when he's crying as he says that, well, you start paying attention and it moves you emotionally. And so a again, few, yeah, yeah. A few years ago, my friends uh, made a film called Seventh Gay Adventist. Oh wow! And they, took, they took the same approach, and they didn't they didn't make it a polemical film. They just made it a story. And these are all people who wanted to stay in the Adventist Church, who wanted to um, be accepted in their congregation, and some of them ended up not going to church anywhere. One of them found a welcoming Adventist church, and the others became like non denominational something. And but but you're right. These stories get underneath the armor that we that we put up and people are, you know, hear them because a lot of times I feel like the narrative is, well, these are angry, rebellious people that they're shaking their fist at God. And I've heard sermons saying that, that the homosexual agenda is, you know, a bunch of angry people that are deliberately rebelling against God, doing what they know isn't right. And then you hear a story like that of with weeping and, and agony. And how can you argue with that? Yeah. Yep. And that, that was the, that was our secret strategy. And we interviewed apostates. We interviewed polygamists. We interviewed feminists. We interviewed, uh, black, you know, people of color. And the whole purpose was to spread information in a non, uh, defensive way that would change hearts and minds. And yeah, so we, we did about 10 years. Uh, without facing the full wrath of the church. <laughs> and it changed your heart and mind as it went along too, I imagine. Like you you are also on a journey as you're doing all this uh you know journalism essentially. Yeah, it was really it was a real roller coaster ride because I started out really idealistic and honestly when I started out my literal goal was to keep people in Mormonism because I saw all these people leaving and it really bothered me. I considered myself a real loyalist to my tribe, so to speak. And I'm just like, we're one big happy family. We can't just disappear and, and leave. And of course, you know, with my Mormon values, I'm like, oh my gosh, when people leave Mormonism, they start drinking. Sometimes they start having sex with other people. Sometimes they smoke weed or they get divorced and we can't have that. And so I'm trying to like, you know, keep people from from going out to the big bad world and becoming evil, which of course I've I have a, a bit of a different perspective now. But that that was my motive when I started, and so I felt like I was helping some people stay in the church. But no matter what, I found out that just talking openly about these issues and just informing people about our history inevitably led a good chunk of these people out, and that. That was so traumatic to me. I felt like I was screwing with people's lives where where I like shut down Mormon stories for a while just out of guilt, knowing that some people left and they attributed their leaving to listening to my podcast. And you're but, like, that's not what I wanted to have happen. Yeah, yeah. But that but then, you know, so I shut it down, but then people scream and go, John, we need you. There's no one else. Please don't leave. 
don't leave us. And so I'd come back and then I'd have adjusted expectations where it'd be like, okay, I can't keep people from leaving, but it's, you know, it's still good to talk openly about these things. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll still try and keep those that I can. Right. But then I would start learning things that I didn't know. And I would start becoming uh, troubled about the things I was learning. And then it started getting really awful when I would have these people, you know, literally, and right, I don't know if you've had these types of experiences, but like a guy would say, John, I live in Brooklyn. I'm flying to Utah. I want to drive up to, to Logan uh, just to have breakfast with you. Mm-hmm. Can you make time? And then I would like make time. We'd have breakfast. He would pour his heart out to me about, you know, a, you know, he's secretly gay or he has a sexual addiction or his wife's bulimic, but they can't tell anybody or he's lost his faith. But if he tells his wife, she's going to leave him and take the kids and all this incredible pain. It was like this big balloon, water balloon in the sky that had been collecting all this pain. And it's like Mormon stories that popped, punctured this big hole in the balloon. And all this wow. pain started falling down upon me. And it didn't matter whether I was in China or Cambridge or, you know, wherever. Mormons would want to meet with me, secretly tell me their stories. And it was just like incredible stories of pain and suffering. And You became their confessor. So you, you became the, the safe uh, listening ear. Totally, because they didn't feel safe telling anyone. They couldn't tell their parents. They couldn't tell their spouse. They couldn't tell their brother. They couldn't tell their bishop because they I all— still get e- yeah, yeah, I get emails like that all the time, too, and phone calls. It's Yeah, it's tragic. Yeah, there, there's just this culture of silence and shame and fear. Now, that's—you know, obviously, that's not what I felt growing up. I felt like it was an amazing culture of joy and clean living, but— um, adults live under this, and sometimes adolescents live under this culture of guilt and shame and fear and silence. And so that started making me really angry because when I, when I meet with someone who's sobbing because the wife took the kids and divorced them, not because they, you know, cheated on their spouse, but because they learned that Joseph had 34 wives or that the book of Abraham or book of Mormon were fraudulent. And they just tried to talk about it. That's all. That was their only crime. It was an otherwise healthy marriage. And now, uh, you know, uh, now a marriage is a family's being split apart. Or I'll meet with this, this closeted gay adolescent who literally wants to kill himself, uh, because he can't come out as gay. And I'm like, this is unacceptable. And so I started getting more angry and angry. And so over time, a lot of my listeners hear that while I started out trying to be objective and I started out trying to keep people in the church, sometimes I would get really angry and and uh, and people would sense that I wasn't as objective. And so, yeah, a lot of listeners found that they were as interested in my own roller coaster ride as they were these interviews that I was doing. <laughs> yeah, and then you you know, in all this time, you stayed in the church officially as you were doing all of that. And and your anger is building, but then about a year ago, all of that changed for you, and the and the the tension, the attention really started focusing on you, right? Yeah, um, you know, in nineteen in two thousand thirteen, um, yeah, okay. So let's fa- go back a little bit. Two thousand eight, the church started really, uh, you know, with its Proposition Eight stuff. You know, I had become right, right. I, I had become an LGBT ally before that. My entire dissertation for my PhD was on the LGBT Mormon experience. I, I learned all about attempts to change sexual orientation and reparative therapy and suicide and 
just mixed orientation marriages and all of that awful stuff that, you know, fundamentally religious people have to deal with. And so when the church came out with its Proposition 8 stance, I, I, I felt like I was going to war with the church over homosexuality. And I did that for several years while still keeping safe. Um, but once Mitt Romney started running for president, the church curiously backed off a lot of those stances. And so you'll see after Proposition 8, for almost eight full years, the church kind of stops making a big deal about same-sex marriage. They kind of stop making noise. They kind of stop fighting legislative battles. You know, they, they, they took it away in Hawaii. They tried to fight it in California. But then by 2012, they left New York alone when New York passed, you know, legalized same-sex marriage. They left Washington State alone. And so you almost got the sense by 2012 that the church had learned its lesson from the backlash of 2000, well, of Proposition 8. But once Mitt Romney lost that second time, it was as if the gloves came off again. And, and mm. by 2013, the church started really amping up its rhetoric uh, against same-sex marriage. And simultaneous to that, there was this woman named Kate Kelly who started fighting within Mormonism for female ordination. And they, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And they started clamping down on her. And so by, by, by fall of 2013, I was like, I can't play this sort of diplomatic, neutral, journalistic role anymore. And so I was invited to give a TED Talk in fall of 2013. I gave a TED Talk on being an LGBT ally as a Mormon. I came out publicly in support of female ordination. And by January of 2014, my bishop had called me in and told me that he was going to launch yet another investigation on me. This will have been the third investigation that my church launched on me in a 10-year period. And my, my family and I were sick of investigations. And, and yeah, so by... By August of that year, uh, I was told that, that the church was going to, well, actually it was June or July, I was going to be summoned to a, what's called a disciplinary council where you sit in front of 15 men and they judge your worthiness before God. <laughs> and um, because I took that threat to the New York Times and Lori Goodstein uh, published you know, the article about that threat, that Kate Kelly and I were being threatened with excommunication, it took my bishop another six months or so to actually pull the trigger. But by February of 2015, uh, I, I was excommunicated from the Mormon church. And do they have to um, justify that decision empirically, or do they, the 15 of those guys just meet and they were like, okay, we vote thumbs down? No, it was a, it was a laughing stock. It was a kangaroo court. It was a star chamber. It was the deci <laughs> the decision had been made before I ever got in the room. Right. It was based on pressure that my bishop and stake president were getting from, you know, leaders above them. Uh, you know, we have that pretty well documented and, uh, I, I wasn't allowed to, you know, they bring me into this big chamber with my wife and, you know, they tell me, you know, we'll give you an out, you know, we're going to read the charges against you. Uh, you know, you're supposed to be able to see who the people are that are accusing you of things. They didn't let me see any of my accusers. I um, just had the charges read against me. They gave me an hour to plead my case. They told me, you're not allowed to ask us questions. It's you that's on trial, not us. Ugh. They didn't ask me any questions other than whether I pled, you know, innocent or guilty to the charge of apostasy. I had five witnesses come in to testify on my behalf. I gave a little speech. They dismissed me. 
they deliberated for a few hours uh, with a huge crowd of like 300 people with the candlelight vigil outside the the church building um, and the international news media. <laughs> and um, they ended up uh, just making that deliberation. But they don't have to justify anything. It's a complete uh, mockery of justice, you know. And then I, re- I read uh, in a, I think it was a religion news service piece that you then appealed the decision um, to try to stick it out a little bit longer. Well, it's funny. I, you know, everything has so much nuance. I did not appeal the decision because I wanted them to reverse it. Um, you know, right. I, I probably, I would have been okay if they reversed it, but I wasn't, that wasn't my motive. Um, what, what the, what the Mormon church does is it wants to have it two ways. It wants to, you know, you get this with the Mountain Meadows Massacre. So in, in the late 1800s, uh, a group of like 150 Mormons, sl- uh, I don't know how many Mormons, let's just say 20 or 30 Mormons, slaughtered like 150 men, women, and children. And um, it was a real problem because, uh, you know, the government wasn't liking Mormons to begin with. Um, uh, so so the leaders of the church ended up blaming it on, on the local people. And since that time, the church has always wanted to have it both ways. We're a very patriarchal, corporate, hierarchical organization. But as much as possible, the church wants to be able to blame all decisions at the local level. Right. And so um, – Same with Adventists. Yeah. And so for me, I I wanted to make sure with my appeal that the very top, the first presidency, the prophet, the, the first and second counselor in the Quorum of the Twelve, that they – that they would be held responsible for this decision. So, you know, when you appeal, you do appeal to the prophet and, and the first presidency. And that means that they couldn't blame it as a local decision and that they would be held responsible for what they did. Um, and in fact, they did deny my appeal. And, uh, you know, so I am, I am no longer a member of the church. So you're, you're so, now a foreman. I'm a foreman. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Wow. And, yeah. you know, it, it's interesting. I think, uh, you know, I, in the comment section of that article, and there were only a couple, mercifully, there were only a couple of comments, but um, I, it, I saw people attacking you in a very similar way that I've seen them attack me and others, that this was all for you, a big uh, narcissistic media stunt to draw attention to yourself so that you could make a bunch of money, which, of course, in your case, you had a job where you could make a good deal of money, and you left that to do this, but nobody, of course, remembers that. Um, but they always just, you know, it seems like the impulse, and I don't know if it's re- just religious people, or in your case, was it just Mormons or other Christians, too, saying, this guy's just, you know, trying to make uh, make 15 minutes of fame out of this for himself. Yeah, I had a friend once tell me that... Um a cult is any organization, any religious organization that won't let you leave with your dignity intact. And wow. And that's, you know, so what happened is this whole host of Mormon apologists spring up and they make all these incredibly awful claims that I'm a liar, that I'm a deceiver, that I'm selfish, that I'm, you know, that I'm a media whore. And, you know, it's just so crazy because, as you said, you know, by by the time I was seven years into Microsoft, I had stock options. I, I, you know, I had met Bill Gates several times. I, I, you know, had been made offers or given opportunities to work with some of the top people in the company. Even after I left Microsoft and came to Logan, I got hired by Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I was making six figures there, was the only employee west of the Mississippi for MIT. 
Um, and I gave all that up to go back to graduate school to become a psychologist to try and <laughs> to try and do research to help Mormon gay Mormons not commit suicide and to help uh. people of faith. I went through nine years of graduate school making, you know, a pittance of what I could have made. Sure. I, I certainly gave up over a million dollars in income. Oh, and yeah. and yeah. I could just tell you the media exposure is excruciating. It is not fun. Yes, I've oh, been I on know. Good Morning America. Yes, I've been on Nightline. But never was it enjoyable, and it was horrific for my family. I hated every minute of it. But how in the world, if you have a culture of silence where everybody's suffering in silence, the only solution is to speak openly. That's right. And so what they're going to do, they're going to call you a media whore because that's all they can do. Right. You know? Yeah, and reformers, you know, as far back as the Protestant Reformation and before, have always been, you know, character assassinated, and then in some cases, literally assassinated, uh, to stop them from from speaking out because this type of mind control and religious abuse thrives in a culture, as you say, in a culture of silence. And um, you know, I'm. It's hard to it's hard to maintain this balance. Like you wrote a piece this morning on your blog saying, you know. I, you know, that it's hard and you sometimes fail at this, but that you really want to uh, always have in mind treating religious people with respect, even though you disagree with them about many things. And it, it's tough, isn't it? Because you, you love the people and you can also see the way it's hurting them. Uh, certain kinds of beliefs or certain ways of believing are so damaging to people and you want to speak up and not be silent. But at the same time, to do that feels like a personal attack to people. I mean, do you have a hard time separating you know, these, these concepts for people, like how, how do you explain that? Yeah, it's super hard because just, let's just take a really simple example. Let's just say I went to a car salesman and he sold me a bad car, right? Well, I would, I would want to tell everyone in my family, all my neighbors, don't go to that dude because he's yeah. going to, he's, he's a fraud. He's a charlatan, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, 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 and when you commit to a church like Mormonism, like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you don't just, you know, it's not like a $15,000 car purchase. You're, you're, <laughs> you're paying 10% of your income for the rest of your life. You're, you're deciding, you're letting them, you know, severely influence who you marry, when you get married, a two-year mission service. I had a, a college roommate die on his mission. He was hit by a car. Well, Whoa. that's awesome if the church is true and he's a, a martyr and a hero. But if the church isn't true, then that my friend Monty died in vain, right? right? The stakes can be high. But even then, you know, you serve the two-year mission, you get married early, you have all these kids, you may have made other choices for education, you may have made other choices for who you married, when you married, what your career was. Um, and, and I see all these people 40, you know, 30, 40, 50, 10, 20, 30 years into their Mormon experience. Then they discover that the church isn't true. And you, you can't believe how bitter, angry, sad, disillusioned they are to say, I gave 10, 20, 30 years of my life to this cult. And so, and not to mention, you see, you know, 5% of all Mormon kids are gay or lesbian. And the Ugh. church is like waged war on gays and lesbians, named them uh, immediate apostates if they same-sex marry. And so you see your brother or your sister, you know, raising their children, where by mathematically alone, one or two of them is going to be gay. Right. And you're thinking, 
this could end very, very badly where, you know, this isn't fiction where a parent walks into a garage and finds their gay Mormon kid hanging from the rafters. Right. This is not fiction. This is real. And so on the one hand, you do, you just want to like, just like when you were a Christian, you wanted to spread the good word and be a missionary. You still have that missionary impulse and you want to, you want to turn to these people, your family, your friends and say, get out, get right. out, you know, it's on fire. Get yeah, out, get out, save yourself now, get your life back and enjoy whatever years you may have left. Um, so that's, yeah. that's kind of on the one hand, but on the other hand, and somebody said this in the comments of my blog post, you know, you don't want to spend so much time fighting monsters that you become a monster yourself. That's you know? right. Yeah, you and, can you can focus so much on what you aren't that you you become a little bit of what you don't want to be or what you're against. Totally, you you become the thing that you fought, and I you know Robespierre, right? It's, right. So so it's a real tricky balance, and I you know I have to remind myself all the time because when the church when the LDS Church you know in November they came out November of 2015 they came out with this policy that that it's crazy it's crazy it, they didn't come out with a policy that said if you're gay you're an apostate and they didn't come out with a policy that said if you're um you know if you have illicit sex with 50 people and you're gay you're an apostate do you know what makes you an apostate now in mormonism if you're gay what is it if you marry someone and commit to them uh, a Forever. life a life of fidelity <laughs> and love that yeah. is the only thing that makes you an immediate apostate and then not only that but then any children of those same sex parents it's it's not just that you know the parents aren't welcome a child isn't even allowed to become a member a child isn't even allowed to have a baby blessing or a baptism and you, you know, where, where did Jesus say, turn away the little children because their parents are gay? I right. thought Jesus said something like, suffer the little children to come unto me because of their, and, and whoever would, you know, turn one of these kids away from me, is it better that a millstone be hung around their neck? Something crazy like that. Right. So, so, you know, when the church is like waging war, uh, I get angry. And I remember making this post the other day that's just like, all you progressive Mormons who stay in Mormonism, if you pay your money to this church, you're complicit in the, you know, right. <laughs> 30, 30 plus suicides that have happened just since November. Wow. But, that, but that just makes everybody, you know, angry at you and it turns right. them off and it makes them dismiss you. And it's just so incredibly unproductive so it's so hard to, to do what we're doing <laughs> yeah it sure is i mean i and, and that brings me to something exciting and positive uh which is you you know first of all as we've talked offline and then again today um you know there's so many similarities between uh mormonism and seventh-day adventism your story is, is and mine i mean i think yours my story made a big media uh, uh impact but yours even more so because of um, sort of the, I think because of the um, intense media focus around uh, the excommunication of, um, and now I'm forgetting her name, Kate the, Kelly. the Kate, Kate, Kate Kelly, Kelly yeah. yeah, and then and then you, and um, and it's uh, more well known. I think you know Mormonism is more well known than than Adventism, and 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 but our our stories have these similar um, timelines. I mean, you're you're roughly my same age, and um, we're both doing similar work uh, now. And uh, so I, I just think it would be we, – we've been talking about um, kind of partnering up in a way like you still obviously have your work and I'll have mine. But we want to 
begin to uh, to establish a partnership where we begin to work together. And uh, I've been sort of hinting at this on Facebook with folks, and I'm just really excited to announce that we're gonna we're gonna really explore that and see where it leads. Because I feel like your your work with Mormon stories, Mormon transitions, the counseling that you're doing with people in faith crisis is so similar uh, to what I'm trying to do. Uh, I don't have a PhD in psychology, unfortunately. I wish I could plug into the Matrix and just download that real quick. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure you wish you could have done that too, instead of taking nine years to do it. Um, but, but we're doing such similar things. And I, I, I want to talk to you just in the, in the minutes we have remaining about what, um, what's your hope for post-theistic uh, life? I mean, I guess and I didn't get a chance to ask you if you consider yourself an atheist now, but um, wh- what, is, what do you see for the future? Because I think we need to, as I said before we began this, this interview, we obviously, you and I agree that we need to not just help people turn away from something bad, but begin to build something towards which people can turn when they leave the, the abusive uh, religious life of their past. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question, Ryan. And this is why I'm so honored to be on your podcast. Um, so, you know, I've, I remember when, you know, Hitchens and Dawkins and Harris and Shermer, you know, all came out with their books. I've met Sam Harris, you know, I've met Michael Shermer. I have deep respect for these guys. I don't, I don't feel like I sit in any negative judgment over them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but as I've, as I've gotten to kind of get a feel for, you know, the atheist community, the secular community, the humanist community, I have deep respect for what they're doing. I love what they're doing. I love the minds. I love the thought. Um, but, you know, um, while they're doing important work in many ways to kind of ask people, you know, forcing people to ask questions, to, to challenge belief, to, to shine a big light on belief, um, you know, I think that that takes us part of the way. But, um, but I think that we've got some really important work to do because really, you know, to, to, to a, I, I know the believer mindset. And to the believer mindset, well, those guys are just evil. And a bunch of evil people yelling at you, what does that make you do or insulting you? That doesn't make you want to let go of what, you know, brings you comfort and what you believe in. That makes you uh, want to cling tight, more tightly to what you believe in. And it sort of, it becomes this fulfillment of a prophecy like, oh, well, the scriptures say that the righteous will be persecuted in the last days. Oh, and here these guys are persecuting us. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. And I'm, that even makes me more excited to be a Mormon now. And I just, you know, I've, and I've seen enough in the ex-Mormon and post-Mormon communities, again, beautiful people, amazing things, but, you know, being, you know, react, you know, processing your anger about your religion, uh, and, um, you know, exposing your religion and criticizing your religion, you know, that's, that only, that's only, let's just say a quarter or a half of the battle. And so I was so thrilled, uh, you know, so I heard about Sunday assembly, right? And I'm like, whoa, yo, okay, no, before that, back up. I, I listened to Elaine de Bouton's, uh, you know, Atheism 2.0 TED Talk. And I'm like, yep. oh my gosh, this guy's brilliant. Why do we have to just sit and yell at religion all day? Why don't we steal the best plays from their playbook and start building amazing communities uh, that have TED Talks for sermons and music that's secular and community where we can still deliver casseroles to sick people and service projects and, you know, have, have funerals and, and marriages and weddings and baby blessings, but just do it 
um, you know, do it with secular people. And so, you know, Elaine de Baton got me very excited. Then I learned about Sunday Assembly. And and while um, I am so excited about what they're doing, you know, I think we need lots of models. Um, and I, I wasn't convinced that the Sunday Assembly model would work well for Mormons uh, just because we're pretty skeptical. And it's just a different uh, sensibility or culture than I think is going to fly with Mormons. So that's when I like I learned about Oasis and what Mike Aus and Helen Stringer are doing. I think that's amazing. Right. Then I found out about your podcast. Um, I, I should add that I actually went to a Sunday Assembly um I went to a Sunday Assembly uh, conference and I met Hemant Mehta and Bart Campolo and I fell in love with Bart, who you had on your podcast. Yeah. Um, and I love what he's doing with secular humanism. And then I found your podcast and you interviewed like the Greta Vosper. Is that her name? Yeah. Yeah. The Canadian uh, minister she, in Toronto. She was amazing. And, yeah. and you interviewed a, a, I'm sorry, I don't have the names, but a Muslim woman Ani. recently, sec- secular Islam or progressive Islam. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, what it feels to me is like we're at this really important moment of time where this, you know, this generation of like 30 somethings and 40 somethings are saying, we can do better than just to rage at the machine. And raging is important. As a psychologist, anger motivates you and helps you process. But if we really want to make a difference, we have to build something. And it doesn't have to be a secular community, although I think that's an important piece, which is why I've started a little Oasis community here in Utah. There's actually five now that are kind of starting to spring up. But I I want to see something like superheroes. I grew up watching the super friends and it was like Superman and Batman and Robin and Wonder Woman and Flash. And it doesn't matter whether you like the super friends or the Avengers or the X-Men, the metaphor still applies. I want to see you and, and Bart and Greta and Helen and Mike and me and five or 10 other people. We need an ex-Scientologist, an ex- you know, Jehovah's Witness, we need ex-Orthodox. You know, oh, another one. Mm. You need to get Shulam Dean on your podcast. Yes, he's on my list for sure. He's freaking sure. amazing. And if yeah, we, he's if, incredible. And if we can pull together and show that this isn't just a Mormon thing or a Seventh-day Adventist thing, this religious transition thing is is universal and it's, and it's here to stay. The rise of the nuns, you know um, – 30% of the of the millennials now are no longer affiliating with any tradition. Within 10 or 20 years, America is going to become Western Europe, you know? And, you know, Mike, Mike Al said this recently, nature abhors a vacuum. And it's not like belief is going to go away. And it's Correct. not like community is going to go away. We're going to have this big vacuum where religious beliefs evaporate and religious communities evaporate. And it's either going to be like video games, and I'll just say video games and pornography. I'm invoking my old Mormon self here. You know, <laughs> it's going to be you know meaninglessness or sin or you know uh, just unhealthy ideas or lifestyles, or we're going to fill that vacuum with healthy communities, you know, healthy uh, ideologies, healthy values, and healthy beliefs. And I, I want to help build the ladder. And for me, if you think about those conservative religious people clutching to their religion, what's going to make them let go? It's not when they're shamed. It's when they have something better to reach for and hold on to. And I, Ryan Bell, I want to create that with you and with Greta and with Helen and with, you know, Bart and Mike and, and everyone else who wants to join. And maybe this is like, you know, annual conferences for religious transitions. 
Maybe it's a network of therapists. Maybe it's, you know, secular communities, but we, we've got to, I think we've got to build something, Ryan. Yeah, I agree. And, and that's why I'm so excited that you're going to join the board of, of advisors for, for life after God and, uh, with Greta, who's already a part of that. And, uh, I just think, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. We're not going to snap our fingers and there'll be suddenly, uh, you know, an analog to the type of community that churches have traditionally provided. Uh, but I don't think that would be healthy anyway, because we really do need to do, I think, the hard work of building things from the ground up. If, if we just say, okay, let's do church, but we'll sub out the Bible sermon for a secular sermon, that's a good start. But I, I think there's a really deep, um, issues and needs that, that need to be addressed. And I, the more I talk to former religious people, the more I, I realize, and the more I look at myself, let me just start with myself, the more I realize how deep I've imbibed some of the lies that, and the way that those have affected me um, that have, you know, make it very difficult for me to think of myself as a worthy person, um, someone who should be happy, who's entitled to happiness. I was just, I, I you know, I don't, I, I talk about this publicly. I, I see a therapist once a week and, and we talk about this, that I, I don't often think of myself as entitled to being happy or, or to put it the other way around, which is probably truer. I don't feel entitled to happiness because my religion taught me that I was here on this planet and, and, you know, as a human being to sacrifice and to give away uh, the blessings that have been given to me so that others could be blessed and so that we could all eventually uh, finally have happiness one day in, in paradise. And, and so I, I've, for, you know, for years, I've learned to forego my own happiness. And I'm just now at the age of 44 learning what it means to be happy and to crave happiness without feeling selfish about it. And I still struggle with that feeling like I'm being selfish. I shouldn't be focused on my own happiness. And then the other side of me says, what are you talking about? Happiness is what everyone should have, right? So these these issues are deep inside of people and it's going to take time for us to to sort of I guess, get the roots pulled out in, in some sense. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, congrats for doing your work. I mean, I've, I've had to do a lot of work too, and it is really psychologically difficult uh, to extricate yourself from a fundamentalist religion. Um, but, uh, you know, good for you for, for doing that hard work. And you're right. It, it's not like we're going to be able to just switch out the sermon for a TED Talk and Rock of Ages for Imagine by John Lennon and – and we're going to be off to the races. You know, this is going to yeah. be, this is going to take decades. It's going to take creativity. It's, you know, we're going to use the internet and we're going to have to find the right way to, to, you know, deliver the right services to the right people at the right time. And who knows what it's going to look like. But I just think, man, this vacuum is opening up. And I would love to team with creative thoughtful people like you and Bart and Helen and Mike and Greta and, and others to think about how we can, we can fill that void in very constructive and healthy ways. No, I, I completely agree. It's an exciting time really to be in this place. And I suppose, you know, it's always an exciting time to be wherever you are because something, you know, good is always afoot if you're watching out for it. And, and uh, I just love that, you know, our paths have crossed like this and um, that we have these opportunities to, to collaborate together. And uh, I'm just I'm thrilled that uh, Life After God is, is growing in this really healthy, uh, what I seems to me is a healthy way. And, and 
just being humble about what the answers are and recognizing that we don't know exactly what's going to be uh, the thing of the future, but just kind of step by step walking into it and saying, okay, what's next? What are we going to, what can we learn from one another? What can we try as an experiment? And, and then say, okay, this worked, this didn't work. What do people really need? Let's go deeper. Um, but that, all that is just thrilling to me. And I'm just uh, great. It's just so grateful that you're uh, going to be a part of all of this as well. Well, thanks, Ryan. And I just wanted to let you know that I'm just really excited to be part of the Life After God team and to team with you and others to to do some great things. Yeah, it's great. Well, we've we've run out of time for today, and uh, but there are more podcasts coming. We'll definitely have you back and, and keep talking. And, and I'm going to have you on Mormon Stories. Awesome. Story. I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Perfect. Yeah. So thanks, Ryan. Yeah, we'll just keep the dialogue going, but I appreciate you uh, sharing today and and we'll, uh, we'll talk with you next time. Thanks, Ryan. Keep up the good work. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Well, there you have it. My conversation with John DeLynn, host of Mormon Stories Podcast. I, I do hope that you will go to iTunes or wherever you uh, get your uh, podcast or just go to mormonstories.org. And uh, listen to to John's podcast. Um, it's uh, it's it's an incredible labor of love that he's been working at for ten years to tell the stories of men and women and young people who have been caught in a, a web of deception and and abuse and um, and have found their own unique ways to to grapple with those challenges and find their way to freedom. And uh, he's doing an incredible service uh, to the Mormon community, and uh, even if they don't recognize it, the official Mormon church wants to put as much distance as they can between him and themselves, uh, so as not to lose more uh, more members, but he is, he's doing a great service to the people that he reaches through the podcast and through his counseling uh, practice and uh, the research and writing that he's doing. And I'm excited to hear about the uh, Oasis expansion in Utah. That's going to be great. And uh, we will talk more about that in the near future. But I want to take a minute here and just talk a little bit about uh, what this relationship between Life After God and and, uh, Mormon Stories means uh, for us and for you. Um, You know, John is, uh, as, as we mentioned, he has his PhD in clinical and counseling psychology. And one of the big things that we are working on here at Life After God is creating a system by which we can work with individuals that are going through a process of deconversion and accompany them through that process in a way that brings uh, added support and resources uh, to individuals and, and even to families. And, and John has a, a huge head start on that work, and there's a, a great deal we can learn uh, from him on that. And as we work to refine uh, our coaching process, and we're working on uh, possibly renaming that aspect of our work and really making it more robust and and, and useful to you and to uh, future participants in Life After God. Uh, John's going to be an incredible um, asset and resource and help to us in, in that process. John also reaches a, an enormous audience of Mormons and former Mormons um, and, and knows, uh, obviously, the ins and outs of what that process and what that looks like to be uh, coming out of the Mormon experience, which I have, even though Adventism is very similar in some aspects, I have I don't have any experience being a Mormon or uh, really understanding the 
the uniqueness of, of being a former Mormon. So, so I'm excited that John is with us in that regard. And then he also touched on this thing that he and I have been talking about for quite some time, which is the whole notion of religious transition. We have a, an entire generation and then a generation after that and one after that that are moving into this vague sort of uh, nebulous space that demographers for, for now are referring to as the nuns, people who, when asked about their religion, mark on the survey the box that says none. Um, they're not necessarily atheists. They would not necessarily describe themselves even sometimes as agnostics. They might consider themselves spiritual but not religious, or they might consider themselves even Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever they have been in the past, but are simply not affiliated with a religion, a formal religion. And there's an incredible need uh, for people to find connections to others that are going through similar experience and to find community uh, in supportive ways, uh, things that the church has done well in the past um, to create communities of, of moral discourse, uh, to create opportunities for service and um, to mobilize people to create change in society in positive ways. And, and John and I both share a passion to see that work go on. We can, you know, we can criticize and critique religion, and that work is so important because people are, um, are, are stuck many times not knowing um, what to do next. But the most urgent need, in my view, and, and John, I believe, shares this uh, view with me, that the, the urgent need is to create something new, as people turn away from religion, uh, what are they turning towards? And, and in many cases, they're turning towards um, the, the everyday aspects of their life, their family, their work, uh, their hobbies, travel, reading, um, discussions with friends, um, you know, all the things that we all enjoy. But there is a, a need among most people, I believe, for an organized um, way of of thinking about what's important to us and the kind of society that we want to create together. Um, one of the, I think one of the great virtues of religion is the, the way that it brings a group of people together around the question of um, what kind of life do we want to live? What kind of uh, society do we want to create? What kind of families do we want to, uh, to raise? And, and this intentionality in living uh, is something that religion um, has fostered. Now, whether the, the results of that intentionality have always been good, uh, clearly not. But the idea of living on purpose, living intentionally, living with uh, our eyes open and, and exploring deeply and reflectively on our lives is, is a, a kind of very gen generic religious impulse and something that I think is uh, uh, fundamentally important for, for people. And... Um, I think that we uh, that are in the humanist community still have a great deal to do to create a robust, um, supportive environment for people who are leaving various aspects of their religion, whether they're just leaving the organized religious aspect or whether they're leaving theism altogether and finding themselves sort of atheist and not sure what to do next. So with John on board and with Greta, who is already with us, uh, at Life After God and others that I'm going to be inviting in the near future uh, to build out this team of former uh, religious leaders. Uh, to uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that the idea of religious transitions can be a much more um, central uh, um, subject in the, in the public discourse, and we can create opportunities for people to find their roots in, in a secular, humanistic, 
positive, uplifting uh, worldview. And uh, I just, every time I talk to John, I just get inspired again. I get motivated uh, again to think about the possibilities and to put them into action. So welcome, a huge welcome to John DeLynn, uh, uh, to join, joining, um, joining the Life After God leadership team as an advisor and consultant with us and uh, look forward to all the things that we'll uh, work together on to create uh, new opportunities for, for you and for those uh, that uh, y- have yet to discover the work that we're doing at Life After God. So thanks again for listening. As always, please share this episode with your friends, share it on social media. Um, go to our website, uh, lifeaftergod.org. Subscribe uh, to the podcast at iTunes or on Spreaker or both. Um, and leave us a review. Actually, that would really help us if you go to iTunes and search for the podcast, Life After God, and then leave us a review. Rate us and review us. That really helps uh, get the word out, uh, make us more visible on the iTunes platform. And uh, write to us if you have something to say, a thought, a reflection, something you appreciated about this episode, a critique, something we could be doing better. You can reach me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. So thanks again for tuning in. Um, We will be back next week with another exciting uh, episode of the podcast. Until then, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.